Welcome students to chapter 8, the first of three chapters on insurance, the necessary evil. You won't hear that saying too often unless you work in the industry, because that's what insurance is called, the necessary evil. And, you know, the insurance agents are people too, kind of, sort of, you know, kind of like IRS agents and credit card company employees and executives. We, we remember, remember, don't worry, we insult everybody. In real estate agents, we insult everybody all semester long, so don't worry. And by the way, yours truly is a licensed insurance agent in the state of California, so I get to say all kinds of true things about insurance agents. Um, one year, one company, and I forget who it was, it was either Allstate or State Farm, I think, they got tired of insurance being called the necessary evil, and they started an outdoor education campaign uh, using billboards, right? Outdoor, it's called outdoor media. And it said, insurance, the necessary good. Now, I doubt if m most people figured what they understood what that meant, because <laughs> most people don't know that insurance is called the necessary evil. But that was what they felt necessary to spend their money on, if it made them feel good. Chapter 8, our first chapter on insurance, will discuss automobile, homeowner's insurance, property, and motor vehicle insurance. Chapter 9 will discuss health and disability insurance. And then Chapter 10 will take a look at life insurance. So let's scoot through these three chapters quickly, huh? Because then we get on to the exciting stuff, investments. Slide number two, insurance and risk management. You see, that's what insurance really is. How do we manage the risks that we face? Insurance is protection against possible financial loss. An insurance company, the insurer, is a risk-sharing firm that assumes financial responsibility for losses from an insured risk. People purchase a policy and the insurance firm assumes a risk for a fee called the premium, which the insured policyholder pays periodically every month, every quarter, every six months, every year. Are insurance companies not profit organizations? No. Now, never forget this, folks. They are in this business to make money, and ooh, do they make a lot of money doing this. So remember that. They are out there to get you to pay, and then their job is not to pay you back when you need it. <sighs> in fact, there's a cute little... I forget which, I think under chapter 9 or chapter 8, called Insurance Company Rules. <laughs> Remember, I'm an insurance agent. I'm allowed to say nasty things about the insurance business. Slide number 3. Risk, peril, and hazards. Now, to you and me, these sound all the same, right? They all sound like something that's dangerous. Well, not to the insurance company. And they expect you to understand the way they use the three terms separately. So let's take a look at the first one. Risk is uncertainty or lack of predictability. 
such as a loss that a person or property faces, you know, risk of losing your home, risk of losing your car, or your health, or your life. Peril is the cause of the possible loss, such as a fire, or windstorm, or robbery, disease, or death. And hazard is something that increases the likelihood of a loss, such as drunk driving, or smoking in bed, or defective house wiring. So you understand? The insurance company is going to use these three separately and assume that you understand that. And they'll say something along the lines like, well, you have an a hazard on your house. You have uh, um, the wrong kind of uh, shingles. And that increases the the risk of loss because the peril of fire is increased by that hazard. Use the three terms uh, differently. So you need to, when you deal with your insurance agent, understand that. Slide number four, coverage and the type of risk. Well, there are two types of risk, pure risk and what we often call speculative risk. And for the mo most individuals, you really don't have to worry about this because in the United States, at least, speculative risk is legally uninsurable. It's not legal to for an insurance company to assume a speculative risk. Well, what's that? Well, first, let's take a look at what a pure risk is. Pure risk is what we assume an insurance company does. For example, we could lose our home from a fire. We could lose our car from theft. We could get sick. These are things that are accidental, unintentional. The nature and the financial loss of the risk can be predicted. We know that in, you know, or statistically, we know that somebody's house is going to burn down. We don't know whose, but we do know that the house is going to burn down. One of them, you know, out of, out of so many in a certain area. Whereas speculative risk is there's a chance of loss, but there's also a chance of gain. For example, starting a small business or gambling. And you are not allowed, as an insurance company, to insure these. Now, some insurance companies outside the United States will do this, but inside the United States, it's not legal. And why is that? Well, it just makes sense. Insurance is there to make you whole, to bring you back to where you were before whatever um, uh, peril befell you. Whereas a speculative risk is, wait a minute, let's see if we can uh, do a little bit better than that. And the reason why we bother to put this on slide number four and even discuss it is because we as citizens have to be aware and watch out for these situations where the industry gets stupid and starts insuring speculative risk. And this is what they did in the housing bubble of the 2000s. We discussed the option arm mortgages in chapter 7. Do you remember those? Go back and look at them again because they're pretty insane. And what the insurance companies were doing then was insuring these things and saying, no problem. <laughs> if these Triple A rated, <laughs> meaning they were the highest quality um, 
loans based on those mortgages go bad, we will insure them. And they were not just insuring them once, they were insuring them several times through what are called credit default swaps and other very, very exotic and very, very risky uh, financial instruments so known as derivatives. And there were people like yours truly and other fuddy-duddies who were jumping up and down and saying this should not be allowed. These are speculative risks. You are basically saying uh, I'm going to insure you if there's a loss or I'm going to insure you if there's a gain. And what the answer that came back from the industry was, oh, fuddy-duddies, you're trying to stifle financial innovation. And sure enough, the organic matter hit the ventilating device and a company you may have heard of, AIG, American International Group, was taking the counterpart of these, uh, taking the part where they thought everything was going to be fine on these credit default swaps and lost tens of billions of dollars. And as such, you, dear student, as a citizen of the United States, were part owner of AIG for a few years. They, the Treasury actually sold it off and, uh, believe it or not, made a profit on the sale <laughs> when, that, when all was said and done. At first, you know, it looked like the, the government was looking at tens of billions of dollars of losses, but they were able to turn it around and actually make money off the deal. Not a, you know, in general, not something the government wants to do. The government's not supposed to get into the uh, free market system and start, you know, hopefully profiting, but sometimes losing. But that's what happened. And these were not normal times. So, so you might ask, you know, this begs the question, all right, Piano, how am I, at, you know, who's not very well versed in these things, how am I supposed to make uh, informed decisions as a citizen and talk to my uh, representatives and say, you know, we don't want this happening. Well, it's not easy. It is not easy. You really uh, need to educate yourself. But, but, say, having said that, it's got to pass the sniff test. It's, <laughs> and these things did not pass the sniff test, even if you didn't understand them. When you heard that they were insuring houses essentially ten times over, you 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 gotta say something's wrong. Come on, come on, regulators, you gotta gotta get involved and figure out what's going on. And of course, it's easy to say that, but but during the housing bubble, everybody thought everybody's going to be rich. So what were they doing? Let's see if we can. I apologize for not making it clear. Let's see if I can make it a little clearer. Let's say you own a home can you insure that home against fire sure you can do that that's pure risk and and any insurance company will write a policy that says if your house burns down we will insure that but can you insure your neighbor's house against a fire a house that you do not own no, <laughs> no, you wouldn't lose out if that house burned down. But, oh boy, would you make money if you could do that, if the house burned down and 
and what would keep you from just oops my 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 gasoline tank actually accidentally fell over well not only was AIG and they weren't the only ones not only were they ensuring people who had no vested interest in that house burning down so to speak uh the, the loan that was tied to the home the mortgage that was tied to the home they were doing it 10 times over they were insuring it over and over and over again to anybody who who said sure i'll i'll bet that that house burns down i'll bet that that mortgage goes bad and that was just totally 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 unacceptable but in the sake for the sake of of financial innovation and and the regulatory bodies the government agents are are stupid governments are stupid markets are efficient markets are intelligent until they're not <laughs> until we get greedy and until we believe it can't happen again there's no risk whatsoever yeah slide number five risk management is a long-range organized plan strategy to protect your assets and family risk avoidance well that's one way to manage risk you don't want to get in an accident don't drive don't ride in a car risk reduction okay i'll drive i'll ride but i'll wear a seatbelt, which will reduce the risk risk assumption i'll assume the risk i'll drive but i will post a bond i will self-insure and and most people think in the state of california you have to have insurance to drive a car and it's not true i mean you most of us working grunts will do that but you can post a $35,000 bond with the Department of Motor Vehicles, which means you give them 35,000 bucks. Now, now it's still your money. They're, they're just holding on to it. And if you get in an accident, the proceeds of that $35,000 will be used to pay any people that you injure or any cars that you mess up or any other property you mess up. So you're self-insuring. But do most people have $35,000 lying around the house to allow the DMV to hang on? No. So in that case, you do what most people do. You drive, but you buy insurance, thereby shifting the risk to the insurance companies. You understand? Yeah, that's how it's done. And that's what you're doing, basically. The insurance company is pooling everybody's money together course making a profit over what they don't pay out and then they're making uh, payments to the people who do get into accidents yeah most people use a combination of these strategies usually without much planning or conscious forethought and all too often most people are uninsured underinsured or they are insured for the wrong things and so over the course of the three uh, uh, chapters we will see situations like that. Slide number six. Examples of the risk you face. Disability, the most widely neglected risk. Sound like a test question? Yeah. Health insurance. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Isn't that a political football? Death. Life and wait a minute. Are they insuring your life? Are they gonna bring you back to life? Mm-mm. Mm-mm doesn't work that way uh, it's not a very good name life insurance and we'll discuss what it really should be called when we get to chapter 10 
Property loss, a home and automobile insurance, physical damage, loss of use, and liability. And those are the um, things we're going to discuss in this chapter. Home, homeowners insurance, automobile insurance, and liability. And liability is the, the real important one. You know, we, this is the one that we really need to hammer away at. Um, personal liability is a situation where you are legally responsible for another person's losses or another person's injuries. And there is such a thing as vicarious liability where you are responsible for the actions of another. And the example of this is if you're a parent or guardian and your child does something like throw a baseball through somebody's window or something like that. Who's responsible? You are the parent, the guardian. And we will also discuss negligence. Slide number seven. Negligence is the failure to take ordinary and reasonable care. For example, removing items from a frequently used staircase. And one of the things that we don't think about is the attractive nuisance. The, uh, the pool, the ladder, the appliance, cars. These are examples of what are called attractive nuisances. Which is, when I first heard this, this is a legal term. When I first heard this, I thought, that's a silly name. But it makes sense. A pool, right, kids. Yeah, exactly. You have to have a, a certain height fence that has to be locked and that kind of thing. And then ladders, ladders, leaving ladders against a, a wall or something like that. Don't do that. Appliances. If you leave an appliance outside, right, you have to take the doors off. Or you have to wrap it tightly so that kids can't climb inside and then cars cars are an attractive nuisance um, do you lock your car you should i know some people leave their car hope, open hoping somebody will steal it because they're sick of it but no you don't want children to get stuck inside a car and conceivably you know die in in the heat foreseeability is a critical factor in determining what constitutes an attractive nuisance so thinking about what could go wrong, that's foreseeability. And so do think about what could go wrong with certain situations, especially with uh, regard to kids, children. Slide number eight. Here is yet another example of our book's sagacious pearls of financial planning wisdom. You like that word sagacious? I like that word. It means you're, you're smart. Um, you know, it's college. We've got to have some kind of rigorous uh, program here. So, number one, set your insurance goals and prioritize them. Number two, develop a plan to reach your goals. Number three, put your plan into action. And number four, review your results. To put your risk management plan to work, ask yourself, what or who should be insured? For how much? What kind of insurance? And from whom? There's a good example where you actually should use whom, from whom. Ah, slide number nine. Here's a more practical insurance pro planning program. Ask yourself, how much could we lose? <laughs> it's that simple. How much could we lose? And if the answer is plenty, you need insurance. And for home or auto, there is no question as to whether or not you need insurance because in both situations, you could lose plenty. Therefore, if you own a home, you need homeowner's insurance. In fact, 
the the mortgage company will not allow you to have the mortgage without insurance. And in the provision that those 70, 80, 90 pages of documents that you signed when you bought the home and and made the mortgage, you sign that if you allow your homeowner's insurance to lapse, they can buy it for you. And they'll buy it at twice the price. They don't care. They're not paying. And they send you the bill. So you need to keep your homeowner's insurance in place. And even if you do ever pay off your mortgage, you still should have homeowner's insurance, folks. Now, if you own an automobile, a car, you need automobile insurance, at least liability. In fact, as we'll see, it's legally required on, in the state of California and many other states, unless you have posted a bond, you have self-insured, but not many of us are going to do that. So let's now discuss um, homeowner's insurance. And then in our next session, we'll concentrate on automobile insurance. Homeowner's insurance is coverage for a place of residence and its associated financial risks. They cover buildings and other structures, such as sheds and, 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 and uh, other structures on the, on the premises, trees, shrubs, and plants. So if uh, somebody runs over a tree and then and then runs, you know, hits a hit and run car, hits your tree and knocks it over, uh, that's covered. That's covered. It's, their insurance is supposed to pay for it, but if they they do a hit and run, then who you, know, you you can't go after them. Additional living expenses up to a certain amount they will pay for you if you need to live outside your home while it's being repaired. Personal property. Now, many people think that this only covers your property that's in the house. And that's not true. No matter where your property is, if it's in your car, or if it's at work, or if you're traveling, your personal property is covered. Now, we're going to discuss, you know, what, how that, what that really means, because... It's not unlimited coverage, and, and there are certain exclusions for certain types of property. So there are certain types of property that you may need what is called a personal property floater. Floater? What a silly name. Well, that's, that comes from the days when insurance started off insuring boats and ships and the like, so they called them floaters. So, for example, if you have a gun collection, and guns are very expensive, folks. Some guns are very expensive. Or or camera equipment or jewelry. They will pay up to a certain amount, 1000 2500 or whatever. But after that, no. So if you have a $10,000 or $20,000 gun collection or maybe you have artwork in your home, you're going to have to get a personal property floater. And one of the things the insurance companies suggest you do is take photographs of your uh, very valuable um, uh, property. And we have early American poverty uh, uh, furniture and the like, so we don't bother that much. They'll normally pay you a certain amount if it's just regular old stuff. But if you have something really special, take good photographs. And then there are some coverages that are not included automatically. And the two that come to mind are flood and earthquake insurance. And we'll discuss earthquake insurance on a separate slide because it's very important in the state of California. 
But flood insurance is one of those things where if you really do need it, if you have a home in a floodplain, no insurance company is going to touch you. If you have a very, very small chance of ever getting a flood in your home, sure, they'll take your money. Yeah, they're not for not not they are not nonprofit organizations, folks. Remember that. And then for minor injuries on your property, they will pay some medical payments, but uh, you have health insurance for that. Now, the last bullet on this slide, number 10, is highlighted. Well, it's actually bolded, right? It's bolded. Personal liability. And this is something that people really do not understand. They sort of, they sort of have a feel for, they feel that they're covered if somebody is hurt, but they don't really understand how personal liability works. And so we'll discuss that in detail uh, in a moment. But if you have workers that come into your home, nannies and the like, you may need extra coverage for that. So you need to talk to your insurance agent about your individual policy if you're in that situation. Now, now, now what we need to do on slide number 11 is consider in what's called umbrella policy. It's also called personal catastrophe policy. And we're going to have a graphic that's on the website. You can print it out, but it's all going to be on this. It's all it's going to be on the screen in just a moment. These supplement your personal your basic personal liability coverage because the average liability from a homeowner's insurance policy will be anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000. 300,000 is very typical. What an umbrella policy will do is it will extend that coverage up to a million, two, or even three million dollars. And that's a whole lot of personal liability protection. So you can feel fairly certain that you know, you're covered unless there's some huge, unbelievable catastrophe. And your home insurer, your automobile insurer, will also often offer you an umbrella policy. And it really makes sense to take a look at it. They're not that expensive because they typically never have to pay. And you don't want them to have to pay because that means something serious has happened. So here's the graphic on slide 12. The umbrella policy is there, and I know it looks like a pickaxe, I'm sorry, but that's <laughs> the best I could do. The umbrella policy kicks in if you ever exceed the limits of your homeowner's or renter's policy or your automobile policy. And so I want you to print this out or at least to have it on the screen or some way now because we're going to take a look at homeowner's, renter's, personal liability. That's on the left side. But when we get to the next presentation where we discuss automobile liability, we're going to want to be able to see this picture because it'll uh, it'll make it uh, fairly clear. I hope I hope how these things work. And so let's get the cursor in here. Slide the cursor up here. Your homeowner's policy, your renter policy, only pays up to three hundred thousand for if somebody were to slip and fall in your home or any other personal liability situation. After that, your umbrella policy will kick in until you get to the million dollar or two or even three million dollar limit that your umbrella policy will have. And the same thing is true for automobile liability on our right side. 
but we'll, as, as I said, discuss that in more detail in the next presentation of Chapter 8, but do have this handy. Now, slide number 13, personal liability example. You're playing baseball, and there's lots of beer flowing, everybody's having a good time, and you accidentally swing a bat into a friend's head. Now, when we say this in the in the face-to-face -face class, class it, it invariably elicits nervous laughter. And, and the reason we laugh is because it's an uncomfortable situation, and we really don't know how else to react. It, because it's really something that you would normally cry when it happens or, or be at least incredibly upset. But this happens, folks. We incur personal liability. So you think it's only if somebody's in your house. No, no, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're playing golf or if you uh, do something really stupid and and uh, uh, somebody behind you throw, I don't know, I'm thinking of a, you know, a, throwing a banana peel down and somebody slips and falls and everyone says, you idiot, look what you did. You are personally liable for that person's, uh, um, uh, you know, loss. And so this, this friend of yours now requires 24-hour skilled nursing care and the cost is $85,000 per year in perpetuity and rising. So in 85,000 bucks a year, where well, you can see what's going to happen in a few years, your personal liability limit is breached and they're only going to pay $300,000 towards his care. Right. After that, the $1 million, $2 or $3 million umbrella policy will begin to pay for the care once the $300,000 limit is reached. And given the cost of health care, Personal liability awards can be enormous. So does it make sense to have an umbrella policy? I think so. I think so. Many people say, well, if that happens to me, there's no way I can pay. So what do I care? Well, sure, I understand where they're coming from, but I, I don't agree with them. Because what they're essentially saying is, hey, not my problem, even though I, I'm the one who was responsible for the injury that caused the 24-hour uh, the, the skilled nursing care. Yeah, I'll pay you 100 bucks a month for the rest of my life. They'll garnish your wages and the like. But I, I don't agree with that way of thinking. You, you have to decide for yourself. Slide number 14, renter's insurance. Renter's insurance is something that I find I'm I I, I don't I did not the I've gone online and I've looked at different um, statistics and the book says it's forty percent. I don't believe it's that high. I don't know that many renters are actually buy renter's insurance. It's not that expensive, anywhere from five to to twenty bucks a month. So that's not that bad. You pay once a year and be done with it, one hundred and fifty bucks or whatever. But but still. Uh, uh, the book says, and other websites say that 30, 40% of renters, just under 50% of renters have renter's insurance. And what does it cover? Well, it covers uh, personal property and damage, basically like the homeowner's insurance policy. doesn't matter where the property is. It, 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 you're on vacation, it's in your car, it's in your home or your apartment. It That's covered. Up 
to the limits of the policy unless you have a personal property floater. Personal liability, yeah, folks, there, for that alone, that alone, in case you do something dumb and hurt somebody, that alone makes a whole lot of sense. Additional living expenses, if you can't live in the place, because the landlord's insurance policy just covers the building. It doesn't cover uh, what's inside the building. That's that's your problem. That's not the landlord's uh, uh, responsibility. And so, so think about renter's insurance. When you go talk to your insurance agent, they are going to probably just show you the form that they believe you need. But there are others. Um, renter's, renter's form, the comprehensive form, the con condominium form. And so they're just going to, they might ask you certain questions about whether or not one of the other forms might make sense for you. But probably not. In addition, many homeowners policies cover such items as credit card fraud. People don't even know that. Check forgery, temporary repairs, and fire department charges in areas with such fees. So some places, the fire department has to come out, they charge you. And the, the insurance policy will pay that. Interesting. Okay. Slide number 16. How much coverage do you need? Well, there's a gotcha in that document that you sold that you probably didn't read. And if you did, you might not understand it. Or maybe you did. And that's called the coinsurance clause. What you need to ask yourself and what the insurance company will ask, will ask you or what they'll figure out, they'll find out everything they can about your house, is what would it cost you to replace your home? What is the likely worst case scenario? Your home burns to the ground. And they're going to want you to, do, to insure for that worst case scenario. We'll discuss this in a bit. Have sufficient liability coverage, the umbrella policy. I think it's up, you know, it's up to you, obviously, but I certainly advise you do it. In, and it's not because I'm trying to make the insurance companies more money, folks. It's because, you know, how much could you lose? A lot. Include protection for specific items such as the collections that you own, such as guns or, or cameras or jewelries, the personal property floaters that we described. Determine the value of the contents of your home. Now, I know you're going to have a hard time remembering the difference between the two. And there are some problems that we'll do and there's some problems in the assignment. But you really should familiarize yourself with this. There are two basic uh, versions and there are a couple other wrinkles. But there's the actual cash value, which takes a look at the original costs less any depreciation. And if you're an accounting student, oh yeah, I, re I remember depreciation. And the other one, which is called replacement cost or just replacement coverage. They will repair or they replace the item with a new item or they'll pay you what it would cost to buy a new item. You want replacement cost coverage. And if you can't remember the difference between two, just remember you want replacement cost coverage because actual cash value says, okay, you bought that five years ago. It's got a uh, seven-year lifespan. It's almost worth nothing or very little. 
we're not going to pay you to buy a new one. Whereas if you picked replacement cost, they either have to repair it or replace it with a new item or pay you what it would cost you to replace it. And the, the kicker, the thing that bothers me the most, and it's not the only thing about insurance pricing that bothers me, is that the two, the, it might be a 10 bucks more a year. It might be a few dollars more a year. And, 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 and they, people don't understand that. Now, they just paid a few dollars more a year, they're going to get replacement cost coverage. Slide number 17. Here's the co-insurance clause that we mentioned on the previous slide. And how does it work? Well, it requires the homeowner to pay for part of the losses if the property is not insured for typically 80% of the value or 75% or whatever it says in the contract. So, so in other words, the insurance company is wants you to be insured for what it would cost to replace your home. They want you to keep your insurance up to date. And a good insurance agent every two or three years or five years, depending on where you live, will say, you know what, we really need to uh, increase your, uh, your uh, maximum, your coverage, because building prices have gone up. And, and if we, building products, I'm sorry, building products prices going up or labor's gone up. So if we had to rebuild your house, it would cost us so much more. Because what happens if you don't? Let's say you have a house that is $200,000, would, co would cost $200,000 to replace. Now we're not talking about the fair market value. We're talking about what would happen if it were a total loss, burned to the ground and they had to build it back up again. And they have the insurance companies have little algorithms and programs to uh, determine that. They ask you what the house is made of, where is it located, how many square feet is it, how many bathrooms and the like, bedrooms and the like, and then they do the little uh, they do the little algorithm to determine how much it would cost to replace it. Your home is worth two hundred thousand, but you're only covered for a hundred and fifty, and if you multiply 80% times 200,000, that's $160,000. So you have insufficient coverage. Your home was not in compliance. Your home was underinsured. So you're out of compliance with the coinsurance clause. Now what the insurance company will only do, only pay is they will take the $40,000 loss and multiply it by what insurance you have in effect divided by how much you should have had in effect. So if you take 150,000, divide that by 200,000, that's 75%. So they'll pay 75% of the loss. And many people have no idea this is hiding inside their homeowner's policy. They just don't know. So they get a check for $30,000 and they say, well, wait a minute, it's going to cost me 40 grand to fix it. They say, well, that's your business. You have to come up with the extra 10 grand. And I remember this was many years ago before I was an insurance agent. I was talking to an insurance agent about the amount I would want, we would want the house insured for. And I was saying to him, you know, I really don't want to insure it for the, 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 the replacement cost because, because if this thing had burned to the ground, which isn't likely, the the uh, the fire department's right around the corner, and uh, it's a long house, so it's doubtful that the whole thing would be consumed. 
I said, we would build something smaller. We wouldn't build a house as big as we have. And he acted as if I had just said we eat babies or something like that. He, just, he couldn't believe me. He said, I've been in this business for, I forget, over 20 years. He said, I ain't never seen anybody build something smaller. Everybody wants something bigger. And I thought, right, it's America, right? Everybody wants something. He's right. So, and of course, the, this is when we were fighting over the co-insurance clause, which I didn't think was a very <clears throat> nice uh, thing to have to deal with. But that was, you know, he was, yeah, at least the guy was honest. He was telling me that we really need to make sure it's insured for its full full uh, replacement, full uh, cost of what well, if it were to be a total loss. Slide number 18. What are some of the factors that affect home insurance costs? Well, how close is the fire department? <laughs> what's the type and what's the age of the structure? The amount of coverage and the deductibles, and we'll discuss that in detail. Any discounts you might get from having an alarm system, smoke detectors, if you insure your car with the same company, certain groups you belong to. And what you will find is that the prices for insurance are all over the map. They are just, it, I cannot understand how insurance companies charge. Because the one will, one will quote you 400, another one quotes you 800, and the other one quotes you 12, quotes you 1200. And you go, what's the difference? What, you know, it's the same, isn't it? And it's, I think they just have algorithms that throw numbers up in the air and see if people will um, will take them. And then you call them back two days later and it's $300 cheaper. And you go, what was going on? I don't know, maybe it's because it's Tuesday. I don't know. And then the claims history. The number and the type of claims they keep track of and use that to affect the costs. Slide number 19. Now, what is the deductible? Well, folks, the deductible is the amount that you must pay before the insurance company does anything. Before They just sit on their hands until you pay that deductible, and then they start paying depending on the, uh, the, the, the uh, maximum limits and the like and the ex any exclusions. So slide number 19, your home insurance policy has a $500 deductible. Your beautiful towering eucalyptus tree drops a huge branch onto your roof and causes $4,500 worth of damage. What amount, if any, would not be covered by your insurance? So think about it, folks. You have a um, $500 deductible and you have a loss of $4,500. What would be covered by your insurance. Did I say what would not be covered by your insurance? I apologize. What amount, if any, would be covered by your insurance? Is it $500, $4,000, $4,500, or the insurance company would not pay anything? Well, the answer is $4,000. Why? You have to pay the first $500. You have to pay the deductible. And most people understand that. Other people kind of scratch their head and go, huh? Um, but make sure you understand that. Once you pay the deductible, now the insurance company says, okay, let's talk. And why do they do this? Why do they do this? Well, they don't want to be bothered if somebody throws a ball through your window. You hang, you know, it's like 100 bucks or whatever, less than that. You fix it, all right? We don't want to be bothered. And so if you raise the deductible to 1000 
they will lower the price because that means fewer uh, claims are going to be made. So the higher deductible, the, the lower your premiums are going to be. Make sure you understand that, right? Make sure. Okay. Now, our next question on slide number 20 has to do with replacement coverage. So your, prop, your homeowner's policy has replacement coverage. Now, you remember replacement cost coverage? What does it mean? It means, right, they will replace it or, or repair it to your satisfaction. Guns and jewelry have a $1,000 maximum. That is all they will pay for a gun. All they will pay for your jewelry or guns. Uh, ignoring any deductible, if a $2,000 gun, a $3,000 bracelet, and a $2,000 computer were stolen from your home, what amount, if any, would be covered by your insurance? So is it $4,000, $7,000, $1,000, or the insurance company would not pay anything? Well, let's think. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If they, we're ignoring the deductible, so just get the deductible out of the way. Make sure you understand that from the previous slide. The whole loss is $2,000 plus $3,000 plus $7,000. I'm sorry, it's $2,000. <laughs> $2,000 and $3,000 is $5,000 plus another $7,000 is $7,000. But wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. For guns and jewelry, they're only going to pay $1,000. So... So they're going to pay $1,000 for the $2,000 gun, even though the gun was worth two grand. It would cost you $2,000 to replace it. They're only going to pay you $1,000 for the bracelet, even though the bracelet was worth $3,000, and that's how much it would cost you to replace it. They're only going to pay you $1,000. But they will pay you the full amount for the computer because that was not specifically excluded. So the answer is $4,000. thousand each for the gun and the bracelet, 2000 for the computer and note if an item is not specifically excluded or limited then it is fully covered make sense excellent slide number 21 now your homeowner's policy has actual cash value actual cash value coverage for personal property so what does that mean the price that it was or would be to replace minus any depreciation so ignoring any deductible if a two thousand dollar computer with a four-year lifespan were stolen from your home after three years what amount if any would be covered by your insurance so let's see that's a two thousand dollar computer with a four-year lifespan so after four years they assume it's not worth anything or maybe it's worth you know, a couple hundred bucks. That's the, called the residual value. But we're not worried about the residual. We'll just take it down to zero. So after four years, it's going to be worth zero. So 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 every year, how much of that computer is depreciating? How much less is it worth? Two thousand divided by four, right? Five hundred dollars. And after three years, five hundred dollars once, five hundred dollars twice, five hundred dollars three times. It's gone down 1500 so the answer is 500 That's what it's worth. It's been depreciated from 2000 down to 500 2000 divided by 4 is $500 per year. After three years, the item now has an actual cash value of only $500. So make sure you understand this. And there's a problem like it in the assignment 
a problem like all three that we just went through. So do those and they're discussed in detail in the assignment commentary. Slide number 22, home insurance availability. For decades, dear students, availability was not an issue. Every homeowner could easily find insurance. But as of about 10, 12 years ago, insurers have become very picky about who they will insure. Insurance companies are not only using the claims history, they're also now using credit reports. They're looking at your credit report. And insurance companies are, and they are master statisticians. They don't try to assign blame or come up with a reason for what they see. They see that people with low credit scores have more claims and they don't care why. They don't, they're not trying to say you're a bad person. They just see the correlation, meaning people with low credit scores turn out having more home claims. So they're going to charge you accordingly. As long as it's legal to do so, and if you want to make it illegal, you have to consult and petition your erected representative, and good luck with that. Insurance companies are very influential. And they're using data from other homes in your area, which... I kind of understand, you know, that it makes sense, but at the same time, you know, if your neighbors are all irresponsible and, and you're not, well, you're being penalized for that. And also, lastly, some insurance companies are asking homeowners to effect expensive repairs before they will provide insurance. We do not insure people with your type of roof. You have to replace that roof or we're not going to insure you. What? That's 20000 bucks. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but we're not going to do it. They asked us to knock down these beautiful, uh, they're called passion fruit vines, and they create a, a marvelous fruit that, you know, it's not it's an acquired taste. It's pretty tangy, but I loved it. But they said we got to take them down. They're a fire hazard. And I thought, that's sad. I thought they were going to grow back, and so they didn't. They died when I took them down. Um, but they said it was a fire hazard. Slide number 23. What about earthquake insurance? Oh boy, could we spend hours and hours talking about earthquakes and earthquake insurance? This is California. You know, I understand that the, the, the legislature was trying to uh, look out for our interests. And what they did is they required all insurance companies that sell homeowners insurance to also mandatorily offer earthquake coverage. They must do it. The problem with it is that it's a minimum of 10% deductible. Not 1,000, not 10,000, but 10%. Even as high as 15 to 25% deductible. So let's see. Say your house is worth 300000 It would cost $300,000 to replace it. If you have a 10% deductible, you pay for the first 30000 or 60000 or $75,000 worth of damage. Yikes! <laughs> Surprise! The amount of damage to a $300,000 home in an earthquake is usually much less than $30,000. Unlike, well, what hap What can seriously happen is the foundation, if it's an older house, the foundation can literally uh, crumble 
or the house will fall off, literally fall off the foundation because they put the house on the foundation they never thought it would go anywhere well in an earthquake it can go where go places and and much depends on the type of home you own whether it's wood versus a brick house which doesn't do well traditionally in in earthquakes and that's why you see lots of brick houses back east pennsylvania new york very quiet seismic area very quiet geological area is that older area is new york and philadelphia area you see lots of these brick houses boston and then here in california older versus newer houses after 1971 california really got strict and said you got to change the way you build these houses contractors and now newer houses are tied literally tied now not with string but they use metal and they tie the house down to the foundation that's some really wonderful new um, ways to uh, resist earthquakes and when you think about it folks if there is a major earthquake such that wood frame houses have literally crumbled throughout san diego throughout los angeles the insurance companies would just throw up their hands and say we can't pay all these claims and so when the big one does happen in san diego and in, in we're actually kind of uh lucky and and fortunate compared to la and san francisco but still we <laughs> we can still get hit pretty hard um, if a big earthquake does come, when it does, we should say, when it does come, it's going to be a life-changing, society-changing event. And we don't know when it's going to happen. 50 years, 5 years, 500 years, tomorrow, we don't know. But the bottom line is, for what it's worth, yours truly, we do not have it. We don't pay the extra money for the earthquake insurance instead what i suggest is you spend that money you would have spent on the insurance to earthquake proof your home and we could as i said we could spend hours talking about the kind of things we can do in an earthquake here in california very simple things and the state of california has spent tremendous sums of money to create websites and programs and all these resources to get people to to seriously consider what happens and you know, we all just blithely go about our own business. They're very some of the things are very simple. Some of the things are very simple. One of the biggest reasons for people winding up at the emergency room during an earthquake, you would think, is things falling down on their head. You would think head injuries. No, it's the other side of your body, your foot, your feet. What? Well, in an earthquake, there's glass, there's plates, and lamps have fallen, and mirrors have fallen. So there's glass all over the floor. If it's the nighttime, the first thing people do is they jump up and go run to see if the kids are okay, or the dog or the cat. <laughs> and, of course, there's glass all over the floor, maybe the lights aren't working, and they cut themselves. So what are you going to do? What are you going to Get a pair of old tennies? and put them underneath your bed yeah that's simple it you ladies uh, women sorry <laughs> if you wear high heels to work what are you going to do bring a pair of tennies put them in your trunk of your car so that you can walk the three miles home because you're not going to be able to drive i have a fold-up bicycle in my car if there's an earthquake at work 
I am getting home. Even if the freeways are all clogged and closed and people are trying to inch their way along the surface streets, I'm getting home because I got a fold-up bicycle in my car. And people think, you're nuts, until it happens. <laughs> and then they think, wow, why didn't I think of that? Do you have enough? Well, I'm not going to go into all the things they tell you to do. Go look it up. Do it. You won't. That's okay. When we come back, <laughs> when we come back, um, we're going to discuss automobile insurance. And folks, I'm telling you right now, this one presentation is worth the cost of the entire semester. Because you're going to learn something that you never understood about your homeowner's insurance. And you're now going to understand it. And you're going to say, ooh, <laughs> this is important. Okay? So, I'll, we'll see you in the next presentation when we discuss automobile insurance.